Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Tim Liu. Tim is the co-founder and CEO of South San Francisco-based Senti Biosciences. Senti is working to develop gene circuits for cell therapies. The idea might sound like sci-fi to someone unfamiliar, but the company is working to reprogram cell therapies with precise genetic instructions on what to do in certain circumstances in the body. The genetic code essentially can tell the cell to kill tumor cells that bear a certain molecular marker while sparing other cells that carry a particular molecular signature. The first-generation cell therapies have really delivered some extraordinary results for patients with cancer, but they also have some limitations. If Senti and others in the cell reprogramming world are successful, they could take cell therapies to a new level of safety and efficacy and more widespread adoption. Tim and his colleagues have been working on gene circuits for a long time, dating back to his time on the faculty at MIT. He left that esteemed academic institution to go to work full-time on turning this research work into cell therapies at Senti that will someday, hopefully, help patients with cancer and other diseases. Senti's work is still very early stage. It's all preclinical, but it plans to seek clearance from the FDA to begin its first clinical trial for patients with acute myeloid leukemia in 2023. Tim, like a lot of biotech entrepreneurs, is the son of immigrants. His story starts there and takes a few interesting turns before getting to this current chapter where he's running a company trying to push the frontiers of cell therapy. I think you'll enjoy hearing about the person and the science. Now, before we get started, a word from the sponsor of The Long Run. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. Now, please join me and Tim Liu on the long run. Tim Liu, welcome to the long run. Thanks a lot for having me. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here. So, Tim, I'm really excited to dive into some uh, some pretty hardcore science and technology here with your new company, Senti Bio. Uh, but just to get started, to familiarize the listeners, I, I'd like to ask a little bit about you. Um, so, where are you from? Uh, I was born in the Bay Area. My parents were from Taiwan originally, but uh, migrated to the U.S. Uh, pretty early on. And you know, I spent time in Bay Area and in New York and, and uh, ended up going to school in Boston. The Bay Area. Okay, so what did your uh, parents do for a living? Um, my dad is in the semiconductor field. He actually went and did his PhD at Stanford, so I was born uh, not too far away from there. Okay, okay. And your mom? Uh, my mom's, uh, you know, been basically working in accounting and business uh, most of the time. 
Okay. And you have any siblings? Yeah, I have one younger brother. He's uh he's based out in Singapore and works in biotech now as well. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So were they how long were they settled in the US before you were born? Oh, that's a good question. I actually probably don't remember the exact timing. Probably a couple of years, I think. Uh my dad came to the States for his PhD and I was born during that time. Oh, okay. So pretty recent immigrants. I mean, so they had to do the usual thing with like learning the language, the culture, all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I think at the time there was not that many folks coming over from Taiwan. So I, from what I, what what I hear, it was certainly a transition period for them. Okay. Okay. So this is a, uh, sounds like an educated household. Uh, What kinds of uh, values did your mom and dad seek to impress on, on you and your brother? That's a good question. I think, um, you know, especially my dad, coming from an engineering background, had always encouraged us to really try to, you know, pursue something that we felt could have benefit um, uh, for the world. And, you know, initially, that was computer science and electrical engineering for me, and sort of just like following his footsteps. But pretty quickly, I realized that my own passion was actually in the biology space. So I actually made a transition over there. And uh, they were super encouraging of that as well. Yeah, yeah, I want to get to that. Uh, but what kind of student were you just like in elementary middle school? <laughs> were you always like ahead of the class? Uh, that's a good, well, um, don't remember all the way that far back. But yeah, no, I I, uh, I guess I was, you know, um, always doing decently in school. Um, but I, I, I sort of like goofing around <laughs> quite a bit as well and uh, playing sports. So it was, it was sort of a mix of things. Things probably got a lot more serious for me when we got into high school and, and then sort of preparing for college. Uh huh. What sports did you like to play? Uh, a lot of tennis. Um, play some volleyball. Um, play some badminton as well. Uh huh. Uh huh. Cool. So, uh, what what high school did you attend? I was actually in the American school in Taipei. So actually, you know, about halfway through my time in the states, um, you know, I was like in elementary school. My parents actually decided to move back to Taiwan, um, and so I ended up going back there with them and. I had to learn a lot of Chinese from scratch and then uh, ended up going to the American school there for high school. Oh, so what years were you in Taiwan? Uh, in Taiwan, I think it was there 1990 to 1999, so about nine years. Oh, wow. Okay. So you're you're born and raised in the U.S. and, you know, you're, uh, you're kind of in that whole Stanford <laughs> milieu. <laughs> Um, but now you're you're um, kind of straddling these two cultures, uh, yeah. getting a deep immersion in in Taiwan. So did you like learn language and um, like, I mean, you must have had lots of uh, classmates um, who were not all like Americans with your kind of background. <laughs> That's right. You know, it was, it was funny. I, I uh, when I was in the States, you know, my parents tried their best to keep me up to date with the Chinese language. I went to, you know, weekend uh, language school and everything. but. It's really different when you're not immersed there. So when I went back, I think I started off at the fourth grade level for for everything else. But my Chinese was at probably like at a pre-K or kindergarten level. So I actually remember pretty distinctly being set back and put into the, the class of the younger kids so that I'd have to work extra hard and over the summer to, to sort of get out, get myself out of that sort of situation. So it was pretty interesting. Um, but I ended up really enjoying my time there. It was completely new culture that I wasn't exposed to. So um, how was the school different than what you had been used to? Well, I mean, in the States, I went to a, you know, pretty, pretty run of the mill public school. Um, in Taiwan, I think, you know, there's just a ton more emphasis on, 
on uh you know um on uh rote memorization and and sort of uh sort of hardcore drilling in terms of knowledge which was pretty different than sort of the americanized way of, of thinking so it was a certainly an adaptation um especially on the language side i mean for anyone who's learned chinese especially later on in their life you know you know it's a lot of uh there's a lot of memorization that you need to do and a lot of practice. So that was, that was certainly very, very new for myself. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So you're, you're getting a little bit of left brain and right brain yeah. uh, <laughs> exercise there. Okay. So, uh, so you came back yeah. and uh, you went to MIT and That's I right. think you said that you started out in like engineering and computer science, um, but you decided at some point that wasn't really for you. How, how did you come to that? Yeah, it was interesting when I first got to MIT. I mean, obviously a, a, a big tech school where, you know, engineering is really, really a big focus there. And um, a lot of my friends and and uh, classmates at the time were pursuing, you know, computer science and and AA. This was around 99 or so. So this is, you know, there was certainly a tech boom going on that sort of influenced everyone to go in that sort of direction. Um, you know, and I, I you know, it was, it was fine. I didn't dislike what I was doing, but really what um, was quite exciting to me at the time was, the human genome project, um, you know, really started to to come out and 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 uh, make a lot of news. And at the same time, you know, I started reading some of the first um, papers around synthetic biology. You know, they were started being published in the late '90s, early 2000s, um, really showing that you could build, you know, switches, clocks, you know, all sorts of really cool, you know, demonstrations in living cells. And it was. It was it was really fascinating because you know when you when you start off in electrical engineering you learn about sort of the basics of how computers work right you learn about how switches work how clocks are made how we use electricity to sort of do these things in our computers and now you know I started reading these papers about how this same thing was happening in biology right and it sort of just felt that you know the sort of things that people were starting to do in biological systems was what I was reading about happened in the electric field you know decades previously. Uh, so right. that's really exciting, and you know, Boston happened to be uh, you know an epicenter of that sort of research at the time. So I, I got more and more into it at the time. So now, but with engineering of the type you describe, I mean, it's got this mechanistic and deterministic um, way of thinking, <laughs> and, and of course, you know, biology doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> yeah. um, can, can you um, say a little bit about like? synthetic biology like what it first what it is for those who aren't that familiar and why that intrigued you so much coming from you know the, the things you had been learning at the time yeah you know i think that's a really good point and probably points to a lot of the learnings that the field overall has made over time i think early on um a lot of the concepts in the space were you know people were trying to borrow analogies from what we knew right so you know, can we think about living cells like computers or like mechanical systems? And could we actually design switches and controllers and feedback loops and things like that in living systems? And conceptually, that makes a ton of sense um, that biology would, um, you know, have feedback loops. We know like endocrine loops are sort of designed that way. And so conceptually, that's really interesting. I think the, the you know, the thing that is, is increasingly appreciated is obviously biology is not designed, you know, by an intelligent designer, it's shaped through evolution. And so sort of the ground rules for how biology operates, like you said, are not built up in that sort of modular bottoms up, you know, sort of first principles approach. Um, and so to me, it's like, you know, at the time the field was really trying to start exploring um, whether those design rules were there, whether we could apply, you know, true engineering principles. 
And I think it's becoming even more fascinating over time that in some cases we can apply those engineering principles, but in other cases we've had to start accounting for the complexity and interconnectedness of biology. And so it's really emerging as a new way of thinking about engineering when you're when you're engineering a system that's really not human designed uh, from the beginning. So uh, you made a switch. I guess was this during your uh, graduate school career, getting the PhD, where you got into biomedical engineering, or at least what was the, how that was understood at the time? You know, this was an interesting time to be at MIT because I think this was right about the time when the bioengineering department started getting uh, sort of um, formalization at MIT at the time. So actually, uh, as an undergrad, decided to add on biology and bioengineering as minors, and then ultimately, you know, uh, during my PhD, I, I made the switch over. And, uh, you know, I, I did a lot of work in the engineering department, but really was focused on bioengineering as my uh, main thesis project. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And now, what was your thesis project focused on? Yeah, my PhD was around engineering bacteriophages, which are these bacterial viruses that we've known about for, you know, over a century now. Uh, but really trying to genetically engineer them so that they could be better treatments for infectious diseases and biofilms. So specifically. And sort of looking back, it seems kind of trivial what we did, but at the time it was a ton of hard work. Uh, you know, we were able to take, you know, a bacteriophage that infects, um, you know, pathogenic bacteria and re-engineer them so that they could express things like enzymes to degrade biofilms or proteins that could suppress, you know, the antibiotic resistance mechanisms inside of cells. And the idea here was hopefully this could be an interesting and useful um, sort of new type of antimicrobial agent that we would try to use more broadly. Yeah, so these are basic techniques that could be applied in lots of different ways. Mm -hmm. Industrial applications, medical applications. Um, where did you think it had the most potential early on? Well, I think early on, just maybe it was just the environment that we we're in and sort of the ecosystem of Boston. Everything tends to be quite focused on the biomedical applications. Um, so certainly we spent a lot of time thinking about, you know, biofilm infections on medical devices. Can we use this to try to clear out infected catheters or treat antibiotic resistant bacteria in humans? I think the interesting thing about this technology is over time, we actually realized that this ability to engineer bacteriophage to infect bacteria, this is sort of a rudimentary gene therapy for bacteria. <laughs> and so, uh, Later on, we you know the technology was commercialized and found some really exciting applications in the diagnostic space, uh, using bacteria to detect um, pathogenic bacteria in um, in in food and and other other sort of non uh, directly sort of medical settings. Okay, okay, so yeah, you're you're talking about applications. You're you're part of the whole MIT you know environment where um, you know. Getting your your inventions out into the world and applying them is generally seen as a as a pretty good thing. Um, now, so did, when did you go on to the faculty? Did this like happen in a straight line <laughs> for you, uh, like straight out of graduate school? Your your boy wonder or something? It was. <laughs> I don't know if I'd characterize myself as like that, but you know, so I ended up doing my MD PhD. I did it as part of the um, Harvard MIT HST program. So that was a really interesting time. It gave me exposure to the clinical side um, and also to to basic research. You know, when I graduated, I was sort of open-minded about what to do next. Um, uh, fortunately, at the time, uh, you know, I got a call from from the MIT EECS department, Electronic Computer Science, 
And, you know, they were, they invited me to come in for an interview. Um, I think, you know, the area of synthetic biology was intriguing to them. And so I actually, at the time, I don't recall actually applying to many faculty positions. Uh, you know, this was sort of something that sort of came and uh, ended up securing the job there. So I started at MIT in 2010, and uh, it was a really exciting sort of launch for my own academic career. But actually in the computer science department? Yeah, so I was actually I I was appointed in in electrical engineering and computer science, which is one department at MIT, and then I later on got a joint joint appointment in bioengineering. Okay, so you get to um, straddle these disciplinary boundaries, if you will. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Um. Okay. So now you, you I don't want to go over like all your papers. I mean, you you, you know you, things you got to do in academia. Uh, you, you learned, you, you made progress there, um, and eventually you started working with industry. How did that happen? Yeah, actually, my first foray into this was with my PhD project. So, you know, with the bacteriophage technology, uh, when we first started publishing those papers, you know, it was late 2000s, we were trying to figure out what to do with the technology. Um, you know, we initially thought it made a lot of sense to try to use this for biomedical applications. But then, and even now, I think sort of the investor support for novel antibiotics or antimicrobials was still quite difficult. Um, so uh, together with a, you know, a close colleague of mine, a fellow named Michael Karras, who was also in the same PhD lab, started looking at other applications for the technology. And, and that's where we ended up landing on you know, bacteriophages engineered to express a reporter that could be used as a bacterial diagnostic um, in industrial or food settings. Um, so that that led to the founding of a company, a spin-out called Sample Six, uh, that ended up moving forward and commercializing and developing, um, you know, bacteriophage based diagnostics for the food industry. So that was really my first experience with the translational side. And then um, after I started my own academic lab, you know, was fortunate enough to interact with other investors, other entrepreneurs, and 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 you know, participated in the founding of multiple other companies where. You know, as a scientific founder, was able to contribute some of the cool technologies we were doing in the lab, and and work together with you know the investors as well as the management teams they pulled together to to take those programs forward. What was it about industry that um, that attracted you? Because not everybody who you know goes to um, join an academic institution, um, you know, sees the need to work with industry. Well, the reality of it is, you know, if you want to move something forward, um, especially in the the clinical space, the amount of resources it takes is is quite high, and and frankly, the barriers to get you know sufficient academic support, um, you know, from from government agencies, for example, to really move things along quickly is is uh, the barriers are pretty high in that sense. So, uh, you know, I was I've always been one primarily motivated by wanting to develop these technologies and hope they can make you know big impact on the world. But to be able to demonstrate that impact, we need resources. We need to be able to, you know, manufacture. We got to go test these in humans, et cetera. And so industry was, has always been a, you know, for me, a, a great outlet for trying to take those, some of those technologies and hopefully demonstrate benefit for patients. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I, one of the companies that I remember talking with you about probably five years ago or so uh, was Synlogic. Mm -hmm. uh, and this was engineering of live bacteria. Yeah, putting putting some circuits, as you say, into the live bacteria to give them different properties as yep. therapies. Can you talk a little bit about like what the idea was there? 
Yeah, you know, the idea early on was that, you know, we had been working to, you know, basically build what we call genetic circuits in bacteria because it was a lot easier than doing that in human cells. And so by 2014 or so, you know, my lab, Jim, Jim Collins's lab and others have published a bunch of papers on building bacteria that could sense, that could compute, that can make decisions. At the same time, you had um, a lot of growing interest in um, how microbes uh, interacted with the human body. And it became increasingly clear that we had, you know, resident microbes that could really significantly impact our physiology. Um, so ultimately, the idea was, um, you know, could you engineer some of those bacteria uh, with novel functions so that they could act, um, you know, at that host micro microbe interface to try to transform the treatment of, of diseases. And so that was the initial concept um, at the founding of SimLogic. It was a pretty pretty new idea. You know, certainly people have been taking probiotic bacteria for many many years, but the idea of being able to genetically modify them and turn them into a drug was was pretty new. So. Companies come a long way in terms of developing clinical programs, manufacturing, and a lot of the translational expertise to really try to enable that new class of medicines. Can you back up just a bit and say for our listeners, what you mean by a gene circuit that goes into one of these bacterium? So, you know, a gene circuit basically is a collection of, of genes that we put into a cell. And... Basically, we design those genes to interact with each other in a predefined way to give rise to like a specific engineered function. So like a very simple example of this is a, is a, is a switch, um, where you might have two separate proteins, a separate genes, two separate genes that are expressing two separate proteins. Each of those proteins inhibits the expression of the other gene. You can imagine gene one producing protein one that suppresses gene two, which makes protein two, which suppresses gene one. So it's sort of like this system where both genes are basically blocking each other. And so that sets up a system where either gene one is on and gene two is off or gene two is on and gene one is off. That's a very simple example of a switch for those, you know, aficionados who know about phage lambda. That's, you know, like one of the examples of how natural um, switches work, but we can make artificial versions of these. So, so basically a gene circuit is, you know, a program that we can insert into cells composed of multiple genes. And really a lot of the art that has gone into synthetic biology is how do we design those genetic circuits to give us the functions we want to do logic, to have memory, to sense and respond to a disease environment. It really comes down to how you program those genes and those interactions. Uh, I, I remember the early days of SynLogic uh, describing it as like, could you design a bacteria that would sense the the changing conditions that yep. it encounters in the body? Yep. So like you swallow it in a pill and it encounters this highly acidic environment in the gut and then it needs to, um, you know, migrate across the, um, the, the gut lining. Um, there's going to, and, and could you perhaps, um, you know, adjust the dose of, yep the drug that you you want to deliver when it gets when it goes from point a to point b yeah for sure and actually you know funny enough we ended up publishing a paper you know several years ago in science where we showed that you could actually make bacteria that could detect for example bleeding uh, detect blood essentially um, and you could actually build other types of sensors like that and actually have them work uh, in an animal and so there's sort of like three aspects of the way I think about 
these gene circuits, there's the front end sensing, like what can you detect, right? It could be, you know, inflammation in the gut, or it could be an antigen on the tumor cell surface. Or then two, there's the in, the internal computation, right? Is there some sort of logic? Only kill the tumor if it expresses A, but not B, right? So you can build that sort of functionality. And then there's the output, like we can engineer cells to spit out you know, one, two, three different functions. They could be proteins that they're producing. They could, you know, be granzymes to kill the cancer cell, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really that sort of sensing compute and then have an output that really is the paradigm by which we design these uh, sort of genetic circuit elements. And that that concept can be applied to a lot of different cell and gene therapy areas. So you're already moving into this next uh, arena. Like you started with the bacteria cells and now... Now we're talking about cancer. Um, so around the same time, uh, I guess, you know, 2016, 17 mm-hmm. uh, was when uh, the first generation of uh, of CAR T cells yep. were being developed and brought through the FDA. Very exciting moment for cancer treatment uh, that you could, you know, uh, design T cells to hit certain markers on um, cancer cells and kill them very effectively. So Novartis and uh, uh, Kite, now Gilead, uh, were first there. So you looked at that uh, at, with your background and said, and said what? <laughs> said a couple of things. One was, holy, you know, cow, that this is possible. That's amazing. And um, the durability and activity was, was really um, quite impressive. I think too, it was, wow, the time is coming because, you know, back when we were doing, you know, research in the early 2000s, that was always the idea. And we were not the only ones, obviously. There's many pioneers working in the cell and gene therapy space for many, many decades who tried to, you know, convince people that it wasn't a crazy idea and to actually show that it could work safely and efficaciously. And so it was an amazing realization that we're now in an era where we could think about using cells as well as, you know, AAVs or gene therapies to try to treat diseases in fundamentally new ways. And this idea that you could actually deliver, use biology to treat biology, opened up the concept that you could actually start making more programmable medicines. Um, I think the, the, the additional thinking was, wow, these first generation programs are impressive, but there's so much more we could do with these modalities. You know, the first CAR Ts were really going after CD19, you know, killing every cell that expresses CD19. The first gene therapies are just essentially overexpressing a replacement protein. That's awesome for certain diseases, but for most diseases, that's not sufficient. So for in a lot of cancers, it's hard to find a clean target. Most targets are dirty in a sense. And so if I build a, a CAR T cell that only kills, you know, it kills every cell that expresses a dirty target. I'm going to have a lot of toxicity on my hands. Dirty in that there, uh, these targets are expressed on the cancer cell, but also something quite similar on healthy cells. Exactly. Yes, that's right. And so the realization was that you know, look, the, this mo- these modalities are here. Like they've landed. It's exciting. There's so much more that we could do. But to reach for that next stage of a broader indications or greater efficacy or greater safety. We're going to need you know, a lot more improvements, especially at the genetic engineering level. And that's really what synthetic biology has been trying to develop for many years. So it was sort of, you know, is it the opportune time to try to put these put these platforms and approaches together? 
and the everything was there like with the car t cells i mean you would they were doing this in the lab so it's this controlled environment you do the engineering of the t cells they're reinfused into the patient there's a window of opportunity to do some other things <laughs> to those That's cells right. exactly um okay so uh, by this point, you know, you had been involved in starting a couple companies, as we discussed. Um, um, how did the idea for Senti come about? Yeah, so I had a really good MIT classmate, uh, my co-founder, Philip Lee. We were undergraduates together. Um, and we had always, you know, he had ended up going to do his PhD at UCSF in Berkeley uh, in the bioengineering space and went more on the device side. So he started making microfluidic devices that could, you know, manipulate mammalian cells, eventually started a company called Cellasic that was acquired um, and by, by a larger uh, pharma company. And then he worked there uh, for many years, um, leading their cell cultures technology business. He and I had always kept in touch and really were observing sort of the rise of enabling sort of manufacturing technologies for cell therapies along with synthetic biology. And so, we started, you know, reconnecting after some of these clinical successes came about and started brainstorming about, you know, was the time right? Could we pull the technologies out of, you know, the academic labs and make a platform company that was able to design um, gene circuits specifically for human cell and gene therapies? You know, some of the concerns that we had at the time was, you know, was it too early? Was the manufacturing technology available, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but we felt that, you know, ultimately it was the right time for us to to give it a shot that, you know, we felt that, that this is where the field was certainly going to go. And there was a, a major opportunity to try to bring these technologies out from the lab and, and try to make them see the light of day. Now, but you still had a day job as a professor at MIT. Um, <laughs> what was your thinking here? Like that, that you could, could you, um, you know, remain on the scientific advisory board and do that kind of arm's length thing that is commonly done or you know, go all in and be the full-time CEO. It was interesting. You know, this is right about the time that I was tenured at MIT, fortunately. And usually that comes along with um, having a sabbatical. So I spent a, a bit of that sabbatical time, um, you know, st formulating and started Senti with, uh, with Philip. That gave me, at least personally, a little bit of time to sort of evaluate and see if this, this sort of new world was, um, was what, what I wanted to do. <laughs> So right uh, when they're trying to put their hooks in you with tenure, you're about ready to jump ship. <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say that, you know, at MIT, if you work for six years, you're obligated, you're, 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 you're guaranteed your sabbatical. So <laughs> it was part of the deal um, early on, and there was no exceptions made for me personally at the time. <laughs> okay. So you're sketching this out with Philip during your sabbatical. Got it. That's right. Yeah. So we started working together quite then. It's been, it's been fun ever since. Uh, but you decided to, to why, why did you decide to go all in and, and even like move to California? Well, Philip was based on the Bay Area, number one. So that was, there was, a, there was sort of a personal need to sort of like be together and start this thing. But I think the, the reason why I personally, you know, decided to jump full on into Senti was, uh, you know, and this goes back to why I started in the field in the first place. Like I started in this field because ultimately I hope this is, you know, just the beginning of this revolution, right? Semiconductors. The first transistor, nobody knew how far that was going to go. Look where we are today. I have the same feeling about biology. We're just starting to unravel the complexities of biology. We're still in the very, very early innings of being able to engineer biology. And I just felt that, you know, for me personally, I wanted to see that be able to make the next step. Like, can we actually show that these technologies not only are cool science nature papers, but can they actually really help humans? And I, I think 
the realization was that, you know, engineering these sort of genetic circuits, especially in human cells, was really challenging. It required a lot of sort of accumulated mistakes that one has made uh, to learn about how to do this well and, and um, as efficiently as possible. So for me, it just felt like, you know, I had to go all in on this if I was going to make an impact and, and try to try to see this see this one through. Calgary is home to more than 120 life sciences companies, from emerging startups to established firms. With this critical mass of research, technical talent, and expertise, the city is an active hub for life sciences innovation. Technologies homegrown in Calgary are changing the face of healthcare. Cyantra is revolutionizing breast cancer detection using artificial intelligence-derived algorithms. Nanotest is harnessing the power of nanotechnology to tackle chronic wounds and skin conditions. And this is only the beginning. Calgary's life sciences sector is projected to spend $428 million on digital transformation by 2024. If you're a bright mind or bright company solving global health challenges, Calgary is the place for you. Take a closer look at why at calgarylifesciences.com. I covered these companies you know, around this time with the first generation T cells. And as you said, they, they were targeting CD19. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's that antigen expressed on B cells. And you could make these engineered T cells that mm-hmm. reinfuse back into the patient and they just kill everything that carries CD19. Yeah. And because and it's okay. Like it's not gonna kill the patient. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna kill the kid. Well, I mean, there were there were side effects uh that were other things that people found out about later, but uh, depleting CD19 was not bad. Like yeah. you say, there were other antigens that people had on the drawing board that might be useful, but uh, were not approachable. Uh, and you thought maybe this kind of more nuanced um, circuit, uh, if it could be engineered into the T cell, could um, could give you the balance of the efficacy and the safety that you need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is still something we got to prove widely, obviously, as we move forward into the clinic. But I think the realization is that biology actually kind of acts this way already, right? You know, like the NK cells that we have in our body, they have activating receptors and inhibitory receptors. And the way they go about the body and try to figure out, you know, is this cell infected by a virus or is this cell look weird from a you know, maybe it's an early sign of a tumor, I should kill it, is by sensing using these activating inhibitory receptors, you know, how strong of a signal am I getting that this thing is abnormal? Um, Similarly, you know, we know that biology is made up of feedback loops, right? You know, our whole endocrine system is all about, you know, producing hormones, sensing the amount we're making, and then sort of correcting for how much we should be making. You know, our, our whole circadian rhythm is based on clocks. So this idea that quantitative functions inside of biology has become increasingly clear over time. You know, the idea that you sort of, the genes are static, you knock one out and you just see what it does, or you overexpress and see what it does, was very powerful in the early days of genetics. But, the you know, biology is much more complex than that. So I think the hypothesis has always been that if biology sort of acts that way already, why don't we have drugs that are like that? You know, the most of the drugs that we take today are sledgehammers. They target a single thing, they hit it really hard and they go away. Um, can we create drugs that are more controllable, more nuanced, more specific? You know, I think we still have to demonstrate that this is going to be a major new modality and new class in medicines. But I think the the scientific rationale for why we should have medicines like that, um, to me, is very strong. You know, there are different tools 
that one can use mm-hmm. to achieve this similar kind of objective. Uh, people have heard of CRISPR, yeah. right? Um, why would you might why might you prefer to use CRISPR in some circumstances, and or why might you prefer a synthetic biology, you know, circuit? Yeah, uh, in an, in another. Yeah, it's a it's a great question. I think. I don't actually think of CRISPR and synthetic biology as conflicting with each other. The way I sort of think about it is, let's say I'm trying to write a story. There's a lot of tools I can use to write that story. It could be someone gives me an existing story and I take a pencil and an eraser and I erase some of the language there and I change the language and I change the meaning of the story. Or I sort of sit down in front of a computer and just like type it out from scratch and create something completely new. And depending on what your goals are, you know, if you're an editor or if you're a if you're if you're a novelist trying to create something from scratch, you may take a different approach. They have, they really have different use cases, and I think that's really similar to how genome editing interacts with synthetic biology for for diseases where we know there's a you know a single gene or a small number of genes that are responsible for the phenotype. There's some error in those genes in the human because of some you know genetic um, background. Going in with a CRISPR element that can fix it, make a small change and restore it to, you know, uh, the quote unquote healthy state makes a lot of sense. It's very, it's a very direct way of treating diseases. But there are other diseases where, you know, it's hard to find that single driver or there's biological limitations on, you know, you can't gene edit every single cancer cell um, very easily where you have to take an alternative approach where we're, you know, need to use cells or use need to use viruses as the therapeutic modality. And there, we need to actually fundamentally reprogram what the cells are doing. You know, if an NK cell or a T cell was naturally able to cure cancer all the time, we would never have cancer. So clearly, there are um, some missing features in the way our bodies and our cells, you know, operate. And if we can take advantage of those cells, reprogram them, insert new functions that are, you know, sort of an upgrade on what they do naturally. That's a, another alternative way of, of trying to treat disease. So I, I think you know each one of these technologies is going to have a very different place in the uh, treatment ecosystem. So you've mentioned a couple different cell types. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of different directions that you can go with yeah. these these circuits. There's NK cells, there's T cells, there's hematopoietic stem cells, the ones that form blood. There's there's other things you can do too. How, how do you decide? Um, where to concentrate your uh, your energies? Yeah, that's a great question and one that we ask all the time at Senti. <laughs> you know, I think stepping back, the cool thing about what we've built here is really a platform that can design gene circuits across many different applications. And it actually turns out that like the genetic circuits you might build for one cell type, you know, oftentimes can actually work in another cell type. Um, they might not work the exact same way or as efficiently, but the basic function usually is there. Um, so there's actually a lot of cross-learning um, that you can gain from keeping this all under the same roof. So early on at Senti, we created a core synthetic biology gene circuits design team, where they basically this team does all of the designs, whether it's with our internal programs or with external collaborators. This has allowed us to really gain and learn from each round of experimentation. When we go around the design cycle, we design, build, test, and then we learn from that. You know, when we fail, we make improvements, and that improvement gets stored in our central sort of knowledge uh, database. This is yeah. where you're designing the constructs, the nucleic acids, which are the code. And That's this, right. this sounds kind of like 
software style. (laughs) I mean, you got to be careful with the analogy here, but um, yeah, there's sometimes you write lines of code and there are bugs in it and you (laughs) you, you revise and hopefully you improve it. You run it through a, you know, an experimental model and see if you, if you fixed it. You got it. Yeah. That's exactly how we approach engineering. I mean, we can talk about some of the nuances to this later, why it's not purely as uh, bottoms up as we would like, but certainly that is the, that's the approach we take, right? So the more things we can create in parallel, the faster we can test them um, in in our experimental models to get to a yes, no, does this work or not, the better we get at doing this over time. That's really the ultimate sort of hypothesis behind Senti is that we want to be this accumulated knowledge database of how to design these. Now, from a downstream clinical development perspective, there is the reality of, you know, clinical trials are lengthy and expensive, and there's only so much a small company can do. Um, So we made the internal decision to focus our pipeline in oncology. Uh, We felt with the high end that need there, as well as some clear clear reasons for gene circuits to exist, uh, we could potentially design trials that go in and and really show benefit for patients. And that's really what we're driving towards. Um, However, outside of oncology, we've chosen to partner uh, with with other great great teams and great companies. So we have a partnership with Spark in the gene therapy AAV space, where Senti is designing the promoters, you know, sort of the software that controls when and where genes are expressed to try to achieve much more specific targeting. Uh, we also have a collaboration with Blue Rock um, around IPSC engineering, building our gene circuits in that context. So we do want to continue to drive forward our own pipeline, but we also want to be you know, really a partner of choice and a collaborator with anyone who's interested in making that next generation of cell, cell gene therapies. So on one side of what you do, you can sort of widely outlicense mm-hmm. your technology for making these constructs, the code. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. But so then think- the rest of it, you're going to keep in-house to develop your own therapies. With. For oncology, I think specifically around NK cells and oncology, which is where we're focused on now, you know, at least to date, we've chosen to keep all of that internal. Um, I think outside of oncology, uh, you know, there's there's certainly a lot of rationale for collaborations with other groups. Now, you've mentioned NK cells a couple times. Sounds like this is a priority. Uh, why have you focused that energy on NK cells? And I think these are the the allogeneic or off-the-shelf, you know, non-personalized kind of NK cells. Yeah. You know, the interesting thing is several years ago, we actually showed that our, you know, logic gates, our switches, et cetera, could work both in T cells and in NK. So from a technology perspective, you know, both of those are equivalent in our in our minds. I think the exciting thing about NK cells, especially over time, as more clinical studies have been done, is Number one, they seem to have this, you know, improved safety profile. They can enable, you know, allogeneic off-the-shelf therapies, um, given that they don't generate sort of the issue of GVHD. And so from a product perspective and thinking about making this into a real drug, we're really excited about this particular cell type. There are some challenges, certainly with NK cells, um, that, but we think we can address actually a lot of those challenges through the gene circuits that we're actually building now. So uh, I sort of glided past the side effects. You brought it up again, but yeah, there's been issues with CAR T cells, the first generation ones with uh, triggering cytokine release. Mm-hmm. So this is where um, the, the patient mounts a, a really massive inflammatory response that can be dangerous uh, because the, the, basically the T cell is so good at killing the tumor so fast. Yeah. Um, that's that's a reaction that can be dangerous, but then there's also a neurotoxicity, and there are lots of companies that have been working hard on that. So maybe did you did you see like 
okay, other people are kind of on that, the, those issues and trying to engineer the T cells to take care of, of those issues. And maybe we've got some other more green fields uh, open to us. I think it was more driven by, you know, the idea that uh, NKs, at least on their own, even without a lot of engineering, seem to be less um, susceptible to those similar T cell issues. So from a cell type choice, you know, could we start with a cell type that had this more benign profile and then do our engineer on top of that is sort of one of the thinking. The second thing, which is a more practical one around manufacturing is sort of the autologous manufacturing work stream. You know, we have to take the patient's own cells, genetically modify them and get them back to the patient really quickly, um, imposes certain constraints on how much you can do with those cells from an engineering perspective. And so the ability to take um, NK cells or other allogeneic cells from a healthy donor genetically modify them, expand them, cryopreserve them, has a lot of sort of nice features associated with trying to make an off-the-shelf product, especially when we're starting to do more and more sophisticated genetic engineering. Okay. Can you talk a little bit? So this is part one thing I really wanted to ask you, because last time we talked, you were still a private company and playing yeah. the cards pretty close to the vest. And now that you're a public company, you've had to put a few more cards on the table, like talking about what's in your pipeline, your, your top programs. You presented some data last fall, I believe November or uh, in advance of the American Society for Hematology meeting mm -hmm. about a, um, now this is all still preclinical. These are, yeah. these have not gone into patients yet. But um, could you describe that uh, that lead program that targets FLT3 or CD33? Yeah. So this is a program uh, we call Senti202. Uh, it's really trying to address one of the key challenges um, in AML. Uh, in AML, we think one of the there's there's two big problems that we we were sort of faced with. One is um, there's no single antigen, as far as we're aware, that hits all of the AML cells. You know, many of the antigens that uh, people have gone after may hit the AML blasts, but may miss the leukemic stem cells or vice versa. So this is acute myeloid leukemia, still yep. one of the hard to treat uh, blood cancers. That's right. Exactly. Thank you for <laughs> helping to clarify. So, so there, um, you know, you have this issue of essentially antigen heterogeneity in the AML uh, context. There's no single antigen like CD19 that applies yeah, here. That's right, exactly. So you can't just go in and blast everything that has um, that antigen. The other issue is that a lot of the antigens people are looking for in acute myeloid leukemia are not just expressed on AML cells, but they're also expressed on the healthy cells. So if you have an agent that goes in and is killing everything that expresses that target, you're going to have a lot of toxicity against the healthy, 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 healthy tissues in these patients. And as a result, you can't hit the tumor as hard, you can't treat it as aggressively as you'd like, and you're worried about toxicities. So to us, this is a really good example of one of the central problems that I think oncologists have been dealing with ever since we knew about cancer, which is how do I make new therapies that basically tell the difference between a cancer cell and a healthy cell? Like, how do I get that pinpoint accuracy? Because if I can, then I can throw all the toxic, all the killing at, at the at the tumor while while still sparing the healthy tissues, and so that's really hard to do with a conventional sort of single target. If that target's dirty, it's what limits you know ADCs, you know antibody drug conjugates or bispecifics. Again, if you only have a single target, so what we realized pretty soon is that cells don't have to be necessarily limited in this way. We could design cells that actually detect multiple targets at the same time, and then make a decision about what to kill and what not to kill depending on which which targets are present. So in Senti202, 
we actually have two major components. The first is a, a an activating car. So there's the chimeric antigen receptor that recognizes CD33. It also recognizes FLIP3. So these are two pretty well-known tumor antigens that have been you know, used in AML before. And so engaging either CD33 or FLIP3 will trigger killing of the cancer cells. The benefit of this is, you know, because we can kill anything expressing CD33 or FLIP3, it actually creates a broader spectrum of killing overall. And we believe will allow us to expand uh, the, the different types of AML cells that actually would be would be treated treatable with this sort of approach. And there's is there a lot of diversity among these AML cells? Do some of them carry CD33 and others fl- more FLIT3? Exactly. Not, not usually both. Sometimes they have both, but oftentimes you'll find that some are more CD33, some are more FLIT3, and it's actually quite diverse between patients and also within patients. So there are some, you know, in, in, if you take a patient's AML sample, you know, and you look at all the, the AML cancer cells, some of them may be more CD33, some of them more, maybe more FLIT3. And so if you only went after one of these eight, one of these targets on its own, you would miss that population, unfortunately. And that would potentially translate into, into tumor relapse. Okay. And your NK cells, they also have this code in the construct that says, don't target EMCN. That's right. Yeah, exactly. And so that's the part that we're, we're especially excited about because I think this would be, a key differentiator um, in in the clinical setting for the treatment of of cancers. So what this is, is what we call a not gate. It's a not gate because it basically tells the NK cell, do not kill this particular tissue or cell type. So it essentially acts as a break on on the treatment. The way it works is basically we identify what we call a protective antigen. So a protective antigen is a, is a protein that's highly expressed in the healthy cells but not expressing the cancer cells. And then basically, this not gate is designed to recognize that protective antigen and, and basically you know, tell the NK cell to stay away from these healthy tissues. And so if we can do that, um, we think we can protect the key healthy population um, that we're worried about in AML, which is the hematopoietic stem cell. Uh, but it, we also think this, this sort of approach applies to many, many other tumors that are out there, especially solid tumors, where again, it's very hard to find a clean target, and we want to try to minimize toxicity against key organs, you know, in the heart or in the lung or in the gut, et cetera, and prevent that toxicity that we see, which hopefully will translate into the ability to treat these diseases much more aggressively and effectively. Now, this marker EMCN, it's on the the blood forming stem cells, as you say, so um, that ought to protect the. Um, uh, well, it ought to help the patient avoid the depletion of the white blood cells that cause that makes you vulnerable to infection. The depletion of the red blood cells that makes you anemic. The, these things that uh, are well-known um, side effects of more blunt instrument cancer treatments. Uh, you're you're trying to spare those cells. That's right. Yeah, exactly. We're trying to spare those healthy cells, and it's that concern over you know what we call on-target, off-tumor toxicity against. For example, those stem cells that oftentimes limits, you know, how aggressively you can dose or how aggressively you can treat patients suffering from cancer. And so our hope is that we can decouple that issue from, you know, sort of the, the, the treatment of the tumor cells themselves. Basically, can we protect those key healthy cells and still allow you to hit the tumor as hard as you can? 
Now, do these constructs have, come with limitations? Because, you know, I, I can imagine you got to have kind of like short and sweet, elegant code <laughs> as best <laughs> you can so that like there's not a lot of, you know, extra crud in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Just like you write code in a computer, you don't want to create spaghetti code that's too long unnecessarily. And you got to test it. So, you know, when we're designing this, these gene circuits, there's we go through many, many, many iterations. You know, you can change every single base pair you want, and there's, you know, infinite combinations that you could change. So we need to test enough that we're confident that we pick, you know, the best constructs to move forward. So that's certainly an engineering challenge. The other thing that's related is manufacturing, right? We need to be able to deliver these into cells, make a high quality product, et cetera. And in that context, you know, generally speaking, the smaller the overall gene circuit or the code is, the easier it is to do the manufacturing. And so we spend a lot of time looking at how do we get rid of extraneous elements if they're not useful? How do we encode things in a way that's more compact to really try to, you know, make the lives of our manufacturing colleagues easier? What's the size uh, that you have to work with? How many kilobases? You know, we're, we're currently we're using viral vectors to transduce our NK cells. So, you know, there's no hard upper limit, but we're certainly looking to try to, you know, keep things within, you know, eight or 9,000 base pairs um, or less, ideally. Okay, so you use the viral vector uh, to to perform that reprogramming on the patients. Oh well, in this case, these are allogeneic. So these are NK cells that you make, and and um, you know you'd run through some test validations to make sure that they're they're doing what you intend yeah. um, in the lab dish before they were to go out and be put into um, patients. Yep. Um, how, how far away is this from reaching your first real test in the clinic? We're targeting INDs next year at this point. INDs in 2023. That's right. Okay. Um, can I ask you a little bit about the business too? Sure. So I, I know that uh, you know we talked about this uh, that this lead product candidate that you teed up there at Ash last November. Uh, I, around that same time, you um, you sought to do a SPAC deal, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know to bring in extra money uh, to to invest. What was your thinking about? Like, what would that transaction uh, enable you to do? Yeah. So, you know, one of the reasons we obviously finance through any means is to be able to advance these programs forward. And, you know, the, because, you know, in the cell and gene therapy space, sort of the surrounding infrastructure for manufacturing these products, you know, taking them forward um, into the clinic, analyzing them, et cetera, it's still a relatively new and developing field. Um, we've felt that it's quite important for us to really build up the, the internal capabilities around process development to be able to know that we're making high quality products and taking these forward. So the financing that we brought in, um, which we're very proud of and, and, and happy to bring in, you know, over $140 million in gross proceeds allows us to plan for that future and to build up the internal expertise and know how to be able to advance SETI 202 as well as our other NK programs forward um, towards the clinic. And this is important. You have some expenses uh, to, <laughs> to, to do this the way you want. Like with that, rapid design, build, test, iterate, whole thing, um, it could, I would imagine, slow you down if you had to rely on a contract manufacturing organization for every single one of these tweaks. So is this just a matter of like having more speed, more control, own it in-house, but the the, um, the trade-off here is that you're going to have to spend more money 
to, to create that capability? You know, I think the way I would think about it maybe is a little bit differently. There certainly are great contract manufacturers out there, but I think for us to be, you know, a, a great drug developer, whether we're doing it internally or working with those contract manufacturers, when it makes sense, we need to know internally what exactly we're looking for. I think the model that doesn't really work in, in this field is simply relying on an external provider without really having a really good sense of what needs to be done technically. Because then, you know, you can lose time and lose insights and, and, and lose control of the process. So I think an important thing for us is really building that internal know-how and oversight over how to manufacture our, 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 our candidates. And in some cases where it makes sense to use a contract manufacturer for some of the components or some of the elements, you know, certainly that's part of the consideration. But I think it's all grounded in having that internal expertise to know what good looks like in the process. So I would certainly not rule out the use of contract manufacturers. I think it's more about having that internal expertise to make sure it's being done the way you want it to. But your product isn't just the code yes. underlying the circuit. It's yep. it's the cell itself, everything that goes into making the cell. So you you do need to you need to control that and exactly. have intimate intimate knowledge of your own product. That's right. Yeah, I totally agree. Okay. So, um, but now, I mean, there, there was a little bit of business story here in the spring. Uh, you know, uh, of course, the biotech markets were down. Um, that's been told quite well. You, this back deal took a little longer, I yep. think, uh, to close than would have been ideal. Looked like you kind of ran low on cash for a while. Um, what, what did you have to do to um, adjust uh, before you closed this thing? Yeah, it's a look a great great question. I think um, you know the thing I've learned about this, uh, you know, running a running a company both private and public now is, you know, we can do the best that we can internally. We can't really control the external forces. So, I think certainly, um, you know, with the funding that we had and the ones that we were going using going forward, we're really trying to be very um, prudent and creative about how we how we spend money. So we have you know always looked at you know trying to do things the most efficient way possible and try to manage things uh, through. I don't think we're cutting corners in terms of any of the sort of important work that we're doing, but there's certainly, you know, things you can try to do um, more efficiently in terms of, you know, the, the processes, the experiments that you're running, how broadly you run them, et cetera. Uh, and that's something we we try to take into account on, on a day-to-day -day basis so that we make sure we're we're keeping the company in good, good financial shape and, and really driving towards the ultimate goals. Um, I think the thing that I'm most proud about is that we have a great group of scientists and engineers here. We're just like super passionate about creating this next generation of medicines. And so at times when we've had to, you know, ask our colleagues to to work harder or to be flexible or to think creatively, I think people have always risen up to the challenge. And that's part of the, the culture we tried to engender here because we don't know necessarily what the future is going to hold at this point. Well, in every company in biotech, if you're around long enough, is going <laughs> to run into a rough patch. I yep. mean, this just is how it works, uh, whether it's external or something that <laughs> throws you a curve in, in your own development, it's going to happen. How, how do you seek to, um, you know, keep the morale up, keep your eye on the prize, you know, and, and you know, encourage people to, to do this thing, which is really unprecedented. It's, it's hard. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think, Number one, when we try to hire people, I think generally we're looking for people who are intrinsically motivated about our mission here. Because I think what you said, what we're trying to do 
is is a moonshot in a sense, right? If we're successful here, it's going to blow up in a whole new class of medicines and approaches. Um, and so it's going to be hard. Like, I think we we don't try to hide that fact from people. And so in a sense, we tend to find people who are just like passionate about that mission, number one. I think two, it's really keeping the eye focused on why we're here. And, and you know, I think people here believe that these products have the potential to really change uh, the treatment of cancer. Um, and a lot of people here have been touched by that. So, you know, we've spent time, you know, talking to the patient advocacy groups, bringing in, you know, patients to really talk with us and really making sure people are really bought into the vision. And then thirdly, you know, as management, we try to do the best that we can to make sure that people are well compensated and, and, and uh, you know, supported in, in their work and try to provide as, as good of an environment that we can in that sort of setting. But, uh, you know, I think it's really about comes down to the intrinsic motivation. Like, why are we here? We're trying to create impact. You know, you could, we live in the Bay Area. You know, there's other ways of of making a quick buck that one could do, but it's more about, um, you know, we think it's really hard to do what we do. There's not that many companies that have the potential. And and so if you want to be part of that story, you know, have this empty. Have you read something lately, like a book or I don't know, um, had a conversation with a peer CEO recently that that you found inspiring and kind of helped you think about navigating uh, this territory? Well, you know, I sure I have had many of those conversations, but probably one of the the books that I read early on, which is really about Amgen, you know, Gordon Binder's Science Lessons book really talked about sort of the tumultuous times that they went through. And uh, I think it was, you know, I, I drew a lot of analogies from that in that they were creating and being involved as really new classes of protein medicines at the time. And it didn't seem that different from the sort of environment that we live on today. It's, it's sort of there's 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 uh, ups and downs, like you say, in all all businesses. And it's really about sort of seeing the long term and 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 trying to encourage the team. I know a lot of uh, my fellow peer biotech CEOs and executives are are doing the same thing within their own companies. And I think one of the fortunate things of being in this field of you know science and, and biotech is you know most people are here because they want to make that impact um, longer term. So we have sort of that that additional uh, sort of thing to talk about with with our with our team members. Well, you know, Amgen is now part of the the Dow Jones Industrial Average, uh, <laughs> been around 40 years. Uh, it wasn't always that way. Um, yeah. I know, I, I don't know, I'm sure that in that book, I have not actually read that book, but I know one of the stories is that when George Rathman, the original CEO was there, um, he invested in a factory for making EPO yep. bef- before they got FDA approval. Uh, that took some guts yeah, <laughs> and totally it turned out agree. to be a, uh, a, a prescient, uh, decision. <laughs> um, so I don't know if there's a lesson there for, uh, today's leaders thinking about man- the future of manufacturing, but <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, a lot of this comes down to what you think will come and making a bet on it and, and seeing if that bet turns out. Right. I think manufacturing certainly is important in the cell and gene therapy space. Don't get me wrong about that. Um, and it's like you said, um, sort of having good control of your process is ultimately the most important. I do look forward, hopefully, to one day when there is a more robust manufacturing ecosystem around cell and gene therapies, because I think it's actually only going to help us accelerate the sort of things that we're doing at Senti ourselves. Um, you know, if we could focus on designing the software and have, you know, another group that's really focused on the manufacturing, um, that's going to make sort of this design, build, test, and ultimately learning cycle, you know, much more efficient. But that that's not the ecosystem we have today. Yes, but I think that's be- it's beginning to evolve that way. Um, you familiar with Resilience? The, yeah. Their CEO was a previous guest on this show. I know Elevate Bio is another one doing providing services. There's a 
uh, a maturation, I think, of yep. the cell therapy uh, manufacturing ecosystem that'll make it uh, a little more easier for innovators like Senti to uh, plug and play. For sure. Yeah, we're looking forward. We're looking forward to a lot of their their hard work in that space. All right. Tim Lou, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Luke. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the invite. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music is from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.